Hello and welcome to Movie Challenge Accepted. I am Jason. And I am Arco. And we are back after a week where I was put down by what science tells me was not COVID, but uh, <laughs> was something pretty close to it. I unfortunately couldn't record and I left Arco out to dry right before the holidays. So our apologies to our many fans out there. It's okay, Jason. Are you feeling better today? I am feeling a little better. I'm prepared to podcast. Good. I was telling you mm-hmm. before we came on, I've had nine research tabs open on Safari for the last two weeks. Okay. <laughs> so we had to record this episode just so I can clear out my browser before my whole computer crashes. Very good. Very good. And uh, you had good holidays. I hope everybody had good holidays out there. We did. I hope you did too. Yes, it was did, very good. Did, Thank you. Did you see any movies I would not have? Oh, yes, I did. I did. I have to. Mm. I, well, we'll talk about this in uh, future episodes, but I did donate some of my money to the $1 billion that Spider-Man No Way Home has uh, generated in the last week and a half. So very happy about that. I enjoyed that movie thoroughly, and I know that millions of other people did the same also. Yeah, I know. I'm definitely in the in the minority, but from what I hear, everyone that saw it, that whose opinions I respect seems to say it was a damn good time. It it definitely was. Um, Won't get too much into it today, but I think the greatest part about it is that it is the first movie during the pandemic to generate a billion dollars. Now, you know, back 10 years ago, you know, a billion dollar movie wasn't made every single year, though the last few years there have been uh, quite a bit of them. And this is the first one since 2019 to uh, generate a billion dollars. So kudos on them. Movie theaters are back, thanks in part to Arco and his, uh, <laughs> what'd they get you for, for a ticket to No Way oh, Well, I saw it in Florida on opening night on Thursday. We saw a special movie theater, so they were close to $18 a ticket. And then I saw it again up here and pretty much the same in IMAX. So, yeah, they got us close to $20 a ticket, so I spent over 120 bucks altogether in tickets for me and my family. Kevin Feige is laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> yes, he is. So I was happy to give, happy to give. Yeah, and uh, but regarding the movies we saw a long time ago yes. for, for this episode, <laughs> this delayed, delayed episode, um, for those of you that don't remember, although it's in the title, so if you're listening to this, you already know what movies we're going to be talking about. Right. I watched uh, or rewatched Michael Bay's The Rock, and you... I got to watch uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, by Peter Yates, 1973 crime uh, thriller of sorts with uh, Robert Mitchum as the uh, lead. And it was, um, it was, I'd never heard of the film. Uh, I'd never seen really a Robert Mitchum film uh, other than something he starred in, uh, not even starred in, he was a, a minor part in Scrooge in 1988. So this was a far cry from that film. He was and, also uh, in the original Cape Fear, if I remember yeah, right. Yes, he was the original Cape Fear, and he played a small part in the uh, remake, which I did see in 1991 with Nick Nolte and Robert De Niro, which I thought was a great film as it was. So I'm not sure if yeah. you ever saw that one, but that was good. Yeah, the remake I like very much, but uh, yeah. Robert Mitchum, uh, hell of a long career. Yes, he did. Um, yeah. And this is one of my favorite roles of his, which is why I gave you the the movie. So the backstory on the movie, it's, it's based on a, a novel by this writer named George V. Higgins. And for those of you that don't know, since I retired from my previous job, I've done some writing and, you know, it's... Writing is easy, publishing is hard, but um, George George V. Higgins is a writer I respect a lot. He was a U.S. attorney and defense attorney in the Boston area. He's from this this part of the woods, which is where I live now. 
And his thing in the novel is this ultra-realistic, elevated form of dialogue. Kind of like a, like a David Mamet slash David Milch slash Aaron Sorkin approach to dialogue. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this movie, while there's not a lot of action per se, I enjoyed everyone speaking. I just enjoyed being around these characters, which is what I hoped you yeah. would when I gave it to you. I definitely got that um, that part of it. I thought the dialogue was very realistic. Uh, I was saying that to myself as I was watching it. Of course, they were saying things that you say in the seventies that you don't you don't hear today. Um, but I I thought it was how these people should be talking to each other. Um, it wasn't a lot of action, but it was very tense. You were waiting to see what was coming up next and how this story was going to progress. You know, Mitchum plays a sad sack, low-level criminal, career criminal, obviously, who is facing time in jail. He doesn't want to go. So he's basically trying to do everything he possibly can to stay out of out of jail. And that includes, you know, turning on his quote-unquote friends to uh, get some time off or, you know... Uh, the sentence totally overturned in his favor. And that's uh, where the movie takes us. Yeah. And the whole idea of this movie, well, not the whole idea, but one of the things I loved about this movie is I've complained to you on this podcast Mm -hmm. and our listeners have listened to me complain about movies that spoon feed the audience every aspect of the plot. Right. Where it's constantly, it's literally Sam Jackson telling Chris Evans, this is what is going on. This is what you need to do. Now Mm -hmm. go do it. Right. And this movie, 1973, this comes from an era when that just didn't happen. No, not and at all. Mm-hmm. In full disclosure, uh, the first time I watched this through, and I'm curious what you thought, the first time I watched this through, when Peter Boyle, who of course played young Frankenstein, is probably what a lot of <laughs> listeners will know him. And, and the, I think he was the dad in what, Everyone Loves Raymond? Yes, he was. Fantastic in that. So there's a scene, first half hour i think mm-hmm. when peter boyle's walking around boston city hall great by the way great locations in this movie yes. everything was shot in and around the south shore of boston areas that i'm familiar with now because i live up here right but there's a scene when he's walking around talking to uh, richard jordan um right. around city hall and the first time through when i watch this movie uh I had no clue what was going on or who Richard Jordan was. Did me you neither. Know? No, me neither. And honestly, okay, good. I, I didn't get that, honestly, until the end when you see them walking around again together. Um, so I had no idea that Richard Jordan was a police officer. And uh, up until... Uh, not Peter not Boyle. only police officer, and, uh, a, he's an ATF agent, yes, which ATF at the time... Agent, yes, yes. And the only reason why I say this is because in my last career, I, I worked on, a, on an ATF task force. So... Mm-hmm. In 1973, ATF was part of the Department of Treasury. Okay. So that's why later on, when at the takedown, at the, at the clusterfuck that is that yeah. arrest at the train station, <laughs> yes, when, he yes. screamed, when he screams out, Department of Treasury. Yes, that's, yes. Yeah, he's an ATF. That's the only time I realized who he was. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I, I just figured he was a cop, and the Department of Treasury part was lost on me, unlike it was lost on you. But um, I did not realize what was happening until... He said that uh, Peter Boyle's character said, you know, he was, you know, what can I do? I'm a convicted felon. I can't do anything. Uh, you know, I can only I can only do so much. And I realized that he was giving him some sort of information that um, Dave Foley, Richard Car- Jordan's character, was looking for. 
And another thing that struck me is how little he was getting in return for it. I mean, I think they exchanged like $20 for little tidbits of information here and there. So it's almost like Peter Boyle's not really doing it for the money. It's really he's getting something else out of it in the end. I'm I'm not sure exactly what you would think that would would be. But I I felt that that was a paltry amount to be kind of like a stoolie. So... So my takeaway of this movie is that, like, number one, this is an overwhelmingly sad movie. Oh, absolutely. Right? Oh, it was, it was very sad. Like, oh, from man. the moment Mitchum walks on screen, and, and Mitchum is, is a classic, you know, Hollywood, handsome leading man. Like, mm-hmm. big guy, has a presence to him. But from the moment he steps on screen, there's a weariness about him. He's and like a tired... A t- he was only. He said he's only like fifty-two in this yes. film. But he, but he seemed <laughs> like he was seventy years old, and he, he was... Oh my God! It was terrible. Uh, I thought when I saw him that he was like Arthur Miller's Willie Loman from Death of a yes. Salesman. He was just so defeated. Yes. Just starting from the film, he was just defeated, and and he was he was desperate. He did not want to go to jail. Maybe I think he did say that he had been in jail before. He can't do that time anymore. So he was just looking to do whatever he possibly could to get out and you felt it and as the movie progressed he was getting more and more desperate and god i I almost felt bad for him i I really did yeah yeah because the whole thing like everyone in this movie because again it it focuses primarily on uh eddie's underworld friends and all the you know the the gun runner he's buying guns from right um alex rocco Who's uh, you know Mo Mo Green Mo Green you do you, you do not cross a man like Mo Green <laughs> no, I love that um, Alex Rocco plays a uh, a, a bank robber mm-hmm. um, but everyone in this Peter Boyle he's a convicted felon he's a barkeep mm-hmm. and everyone's lives in this are kind of sad and I think what what Higgins did with the novel and what Yates does with the movie is there's a certain like working class. Uh, like you said, defeatist attitude or sort of this, this everyone is resigned to their place in the world. And even though Alex Rocco is, is robbing banks and pulling some money out of the banks and, you know, Peter Boyle has a job and mm-hmm. Robert Mitchum is, is doing his odd jobs, right. none of these people are getting ahead. Everyone is just treading water. Right, right. And I, 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 think, that, I think that they all are low-level um, uh, criminals in yes. the underworld of Boston and... I think that uh, Alex Rocco's character, Jimmy Scalise, had said that, uh, all right, this is our last caper until, you know, and then the season's over. It's like there was almost like a seasonal thing. Then they, uh, I believe they, they all disappeared to Florida for five, six months out of the year. So basically they're snowbirds, but uh, for bank robbing. So, uh, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, one thing I found very, very interesting is a lot of these great crime noir films take place in Boston. So... You know, a movie like The Departed and a movie like The Town also take part in Boston. So yeah. I feel I feel that those films, having seen those in the last few years, and as you know, The Departed is one of my favorite films of all time, though I know you're not very high on it as I am, but I have never really realized how 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 much the criminal element is actually in Boston. Uh, you know, the, the, the Irish Mafia is to Boston as the regular mafia is to New York. Yeah, it's definitely present up here. And, you, you know, Whitey Bulger, of course, for, for yeah, years yeah. Yeah. W- went on the run. And, and another 
this is a lesser Boston crime movie, but Johnny Depp's uh, Black Mass, which was Whitey Bulger's story. Um, but in in The Departed, uh, Jack Nicholson's essentially playing Whitey Bulger. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, but they just didn't do the story on the actual person. They they did a fictionalized take based on a Hong Kong movie called I think Internal Affair or yes. Infernal Affairs. Yes. Uh, yeah, but that that's I I like that movie very much. It's not my favorite Scorsese. Yeah, but there's something about. Um, the the sort of working class uh, effect that goes on up here, where there's an acceptability of a certain type of criminal, like the kind of criminal who is up to no good, but also comes home and does the grocery shopping, like yes. Robert Mitchum does in this movie for his right. wife, and right. you know, and, and goes to the to the delicatessen and and the butcher. There's right. sort of a there's sort of an acceptance of crime as a way of life. He's try, in, in, yeah. That pervades the movie. He's trying to provide for his family, uh, even in the in the simplest of times and simplest of terms. Really, he is doing everything he possibly can to provide for his family, whether it be illegally or legally. And I, I believe that that is one of the reasons why he doesn't want to go away. Obviously, it's not just a selfish thing, but he's trying to take care of his family as best he could. And he doesn't want his wife to go on welfare. He is one of the things that he he was telling his uh, friends about. Can you believe it? You know, the old lady's got to go on welfare, you know, like like uh, other poor people. Yeah. Uh, so that, he, that, he, that's he a... can't accept that for what he can't accept that what he's what has become of his life and his family's life either through circumstance or through his own doings. Yeah, it's definitely a, a point of pride with these mm -hmm. guys that like their families don't go on on welfare. Right. Their families don't have to, you know, have anyone uh, taking care of them. Like they right. all take care of themselves and it's a point of pride for them and it's something that pops up time and again in the movie, which is the same thing. It's like, that's the reason why Mitchum can't go away, right? Right. Is because right. he... he there's a dishonor involved if his wife, who <laughs> one of the most dedicated uh, movie wives, I think she's oh. only got one scene, right? Oh, like she, the, yeah, uh, uh, two maybe at tops, but boy, she was all in on it. Yeah, you got to go to jail, no problem. I will yeah, take care of well, the kids. I'll be here when you get out. And oh man, she was into it. <laughs> yeah, if you uh, if you wanted yeah. to be a, a minor small time gun runner and yeah. you needed a, a ride or die wife, let that, me tell you, she was it. She was Robert it. Mitchum's wife in this movie is for you. Yeah, Helena <laughs> Helena Carroll is her name in uh, Sheila Coyle. Boy, oh boy, I I felt that uh, right away. That uh, I was like, wow, this is this is the wife uh, for uh, a criminal man right here. Which, which, yeah, and which again kind of speaks to the fact that like yes, this is part of. Th this is the world we live in, right? right yeah. And Robert Mitchum's world, this is an acceptance of like, this is the world I've entered into. And, it, and this, is a, this is a theme that pops up in Road to Perdition, the, right. uh, the Tom Hanks, uh, yes. Paul Newman movie with mm -hmm. uh, Jude Law. But it's sort of this acceptance of like, we've stepped into this thing. We are not victims. We, this is the life we chose. Right. And Mitchum is at a point when he can't do... I think it's like a two or three year bit up in New Hampshire for driving a tractor full of stolen something. I don't uh, know what. It was uh, booze. Booze. It was booze, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I, I also didn't realize, and this is another aspect of this. So Peter Boyle goes and he meets uh, goes and he meets Dave Foley, the Richard Jordan character, right. who's an ATF agent. Yes. Then when Robert Mitchum meets him later in the movie, because they're yeah. both, everyone's pitching the feds. Everyone's angling to give up their friends in order yeah. to stay ahead of the game. Right. 
I even then I didn't realize, I swear, and this is pathetic because I, I read the novel a long time ago and I can't believe this didn't click with me, but I did not put two and two together to realize that Richard Jordan was the ATF agent because when Mitchum meets him up at the rest stop off by the side of the highway, right. he keeps saying like, hey, can you talk to our friend up, uh, our friend, the attorney? Mm-hmm. I thought Jordan, uh, Richard Jordan was playing like a, like an underworld mafia like higher criminal. up. I, I thought that also until... until uh, the, he met up with his with Richard Jordan met up with his partner back at the precinct. Yes, or or wherever it was. You, then you realize that they were um, they were authorities of some sort. And I, I don't know what this again what this says about me. The fact that the guy that did this work for twenty years can't fucking pick up on who the cops are in a movie. <laughs> That's either either Richard Jordan is the greatest undercover. Of in movie history, or I was a terrible detective. Yeah. Either of those things might be true. I don't know. No, I know. I, I I just think that he did a great job in selling his role and clearly dual roles. You know, in in this film, uh, he did a he did a great job in it. In fact, they were all understated in the way that they acted through this film, but they really did a good job in in selling to you that they were settled into their life, somewhat desperate. And just like you said, looking to get ahead, every little bit that they could do. Hell, Peter Boyle would take $20 just to sell somebody up the river. Wouldn't even mind in the slightest. I think the thing with Peter Boyle taking the money, and this is part of my overall impression of this movie, is that all of these guys are small timers. Yes. But yes. We, they all want to be something more than that. And I, I think part uh, of why Boyle is willing to give up his friends is it gives him a sense of maybe, if not power, but importance in some way that he has the ability to sort of control Mm. these guys destinies and also it's self-preservation right because whatever Boyle has going on as long as he's more valuable to Dave to the ATF Mm -hmm. than Eddie Coyle is right he can continue running whatever scams he's doing but he has to give up Coyle in order to keep himself important so and 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 that's and that's a theme throughout these films where the um I think you've seen the same thing where the authorities, the cops will let the criminals do their small time things, you know, and look the other way as long as they get something big every once in a while to make it worth their while. Yeah. And having worked with informants like, you you know, the the informants, no good informant is clean because right. it's just not how the, how the world works. Of course. But at this and, and you don't want your people doing anything illegal, but at the same time, there's like, uh, there's an acceptance that like, yeah, people are going to run their little scams and maybe deal drugs. And as long as no one's getting killed, I think it's well, okay. And the okay. issue in this movie is when the bank robberies start to go bad. Well, here's, here's a question to you as a, as a retired police officer and somebody who's dealt with people like this in, in his lives. How did you justify letting somebody you know an informant you know is doing something illegal although small time whatever that might be in in exchange for something bigger later on down the line so when the so when people were out on the street like i I did not know if they were actively still engaged in crime because obviously anyone that you're working with while they're out on the street you can't they they can't be engaged in crime right okay but where it does get hinky and you get into this moral gray zone is i worked like i said i was on an an atf task force and we worked cases with federal prosecutors and a lot of that involves like you know these big takedowns you read about like with the sopranos where fbi agents would swarm all the 
all the members of the family and lock them all up at once. But you work with something called cooperators. Mm -hmm. And so these are people that come in and they're like, hey, you got me dirty. I'll tell you everything I did and I'll tell you everything everyone else has done. But then you're put in the position of taking this. I mean, I've worked with people who admitted to murders and shootings and you're then using them to try to lock up, you know, 10 other people that were also involved in these crimes. But there's a moral scale there where you're saying, okay, is the long-term good to work with this awful human being in order to hopefully prevent future violence from going on and getting these other people that are, you know, ravaging their own neighborhoods from getting them off the street? Of course. And I don't know what the right answer is to that, right? Because these cases, a lot of these cases are, are built on testimony of people that have been part of the organization. You know, right. uh, uh, Henry Hill. Yes, of course. Yeah, Henry Hill. Uh, it's just, like I said, it's just a question of somebody, you, who who has been involved in this. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I would imagine it'd be, it would be difficult to think that these guys are not still out there doing their thing. And, uh, you know, however big or small it is, is it worth what you're going to get from them later on? Small fish for the big fish, really. Yeah, and that's obviously a sort of a bigger, less enjoyable conversation <laughs> that's going on regarding our society in general yeah. in terms yeah. of how we view, you know, lo- how we want to prosecute people and, and what justice is and you're getting you're going down a whole different road but right. yeah i mean i i it's it's an imperfect world and with a ton of shades of gray involved and that's but that is a big part of what this film is because foley is literally uh, trading one for the other when it comes to these criminals and he knows you know that uh that coil is still doing some things he's he's still involved Maybe not gun running. Probably he's probably not doing that. But he is ATF, so he's looking for people that are dealing with big time guns. And you know, uh, what's the one gun that they kept on saying would get you life in that state? And that was machine guns. You know, and and they they were dealing with that also. So for him to be able to take down, um, uh, who which is the character that was Jackie the, Brown, Jackie Brown, <laughs> Jackie, <laughs> Jackie yeah, Brown, obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Stephen Keats's uh, character, Jackie Brown. That guy played a great part in this film because you know what, you felt for him. He had, he's running guns left and right, and for twenty four hours straight, he he's sleeping for twenty minutes in the parking lot just to get a get a nap, and he's trying to stay ahead of everybody, but trying to make a dollar. So he's another guy that's desperate, but he doesn't want to push too far where he will get busted and pinched for life, which he eventually does, and that is because of Eddie Coyle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of the movie itself, I am a little curious because this is an, an understated movie, right? In oh, every yeah, way. Absolutely. There's, absolutely. there's portions where there's no music, which I know you love immensely. <laughs> there's, But I did not notice it in this film. Uh, and I don't um, know. Probably because I was so into the story and it was so tense for me and I was really waiting to see what was coming next. Uh, so what, I, I don't think the music really mattered to me. What did you think of the bank robberies? Uh, well, I mean, uh, seeing films uh, with bank robberies like Heat 
And this, uh, this is the anti-heat. You know, yeah, it's definitely anti-heat. And uh, let's see, uh, what's another great bank robber film? Oh yeah, Point Break, where <laughs> where okay. they're, they're, they're very uh, meticulous and to the to the second and everything. I tell you what, they didn't do a bad job of it, but you know. It just goes to show you that you're as strong, your gang is as strong as your weakest link, and you have one guy who's a little jumpy, and everything goes sideways. And yeah, it's that's a what classic. In, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's that classic trope of the one guy that's like, I, it's like Wayne growing heat. Yes. I had to get it yeah. all, man. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. looking at me. Oh God, I hate, I hated Wayne growing heat. Uh, but I and I don't know the name of the character that uh, did the same thing in this film. But I mean, I think it was Artie know. Van. Joe Santos played him. Really? You thought it was him? I thought it was somebody else, to be quite honest with you. Oh, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. It's, yeah. It wasn't him that, that gets a little itchy in the second bank robbery. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but, uh, I, you know, Joe, Joe Santos in this film. It was pretty funny. I'm like, hey, I know that guy. And, uh, you know, <laughs> while, while he didn't have a huge uh, particular film, he, he definitely had that. He was the one guy in the film that you're like, hey, I know that guy from his face. What else did he do? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so as far as the bank robberies go, it was you could tell that they were practiced and they know what they were doing, but just like all, you know, to, to create the drama, it has to go sideways, and there's always that one guy with the itchy trigger finger. Yeah, and, and the bank robberies in this reminded me a lot of. Have you ever seen the original Taking of Pelham One Two Three? No, I have not. So I, I, I came around out around the same time. You haven't. Hmm. Yeah. No. I. I okay. I'll get back to that. Yeah. But. This came out around, excuse me. This came out around the same time as the Taking Pelham One Two Three, yeah. and it's kind of got that same seventies uh, American cinema vibe to it, mm-hmm. where there's a, a tension always present, but it, nothing is overdone. And even the uh, even the villains and, and the, as they're interacting with the hostages, there's right. sort of an almost oddly calm acceptance by everyone involved in this where no one's really freaking out and everyone's kind of like you know please please give him whatever they want they have my wife and child they yeah will kill oh my them. god like ro- like robots yeah guys, yeah just just do what he says you know we, we have to believe him and like guys really i'd be sweating my ass off right here <laughs> <laughs> and this was back in an era when bank robberies were much more common than they are now yeah and, I, uh, I guess so i guess so but it, it just it's it's fascinating to me how the portrayal, and this is kind of why I like the old American uh, those seventies movies, is they're able to ratchet up the tension in these scenes without resorting to a thousand rounds flying across Los right. Angeles. And I love Heat. Heat is yeah, my all time favorite I, 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 movie. Like I said, we. But that was great for that film. And that was the pinnacle of that film because in Heat, everything was a very slow smolder in the background until that happened. And that was amazing. <laughs> that yeah. was amazing. And, yeah. and, and again, this is, this is sort of the opposite of that where everything is, is calm until one, one teller decides he's going to be the hero and then it all goes to shit. Yeah, I, I, was, I, I, I said to myself, what is he doing? And I, I think I screamed to the, at, the, at, the, uh, at the screen. I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. And he shouldn't have done it. And he shouldn't um, have done it. Did you – so movie goes on. You're watching this movie for the first right. time. Right. How did you see this ending in your head? Um, so that's interesting. It was – well – let me ask you this. Uh, so Eddie turned on uh, the gun runner. Uh, I apologize again. What was his name? Uh, Steve Katz, Jackie Steve Brown. Keats. Yeah, Steve Jackie Keats. Brown. He turned on him. But who gave 
uh, Rich, uh, Dave Foley, Richard Jordan's character, the info on Alex Rocco's gang. It I think. Yeah. Who, who you don't think it's it? Peter Boyle? Um. Yeah, it, it could definitely have been Peter Boyle, but I. But it was never. It was never explicitly said. Right. That's the thing is that he, he, they they always they always force you to do some work. It's it forces the audience to be a much more active viewer and an active participant because they're not going to lay out. Peter Boyle's not going to go to Dave Foley in another meeting and say, "Hey, this is what I'm doing." I right. think that is that happens off screen, right. and what you're left with is Eddie Coyle is telling the ATF agent, Dave Foley, he's yeah. like, I can give you those bank robbers. Yeah. He goes, oh, I already got it. Yeah. I already got him. I already got I don't need it. You, where were you yesterday? I would have uh, I would have taken care of you yesterday. And that, and that is the turning point of the film where it's almost heartbreaking. You could see how sullen Eddie Coyle becomes after hearing that because he now has nothing to bargain with after that. You know, whatever help he's already given um, Foley is not going to be enough for him to stay out of jail. Maybe, so, you know, his sentence would be brought down a little bit. But he did something he didn't want to do because he was a stand-up guy. That was a huge thing in the beginning of the film. He didn't turn on anybody. And now he is. He went against his own whatever moral code he has, turned on, to, on his quote-unquote friends, and didn't get anything out of it. And he's still going to jail. That was, hard, that was heartbreaking. And that's the ultimate sadness of this movie is yes. that Eddie Coyle's introduced as a stand-up guy, someone you never have to worry about. Right. And when he's finally backed into a corner where he's got to give up the gun runner, who he doesn't have any allegiance to other than the fact that this is business and you right. don't turn on anyone in the business. Mm -hmm. And right. even when he gives that guy up, it's not enough. And Dave Foley says, what else you got? And he's like, I can give you those bank robbers. And he goes, I already got him. And you see it in, in Robert Mitchum's face where he's like, I've got nothing else. Right. Everything that I could have got done to get myself out of this is I've given you and I have no other way out. And I almost think there's a moment there when he knows he's not going to make it out of the movie alive. Um, I think the when he's with uh, Peter Boyle, I think he realizes something of that. Uh, I, I oh, when he's up. in the bar? Yeah. No, when he's at the uh, Bruins game. Uh, oh, I think I, he knows I, before that. Oh, you think he knows before that? Okay. I really do. Yeah, okay. Um, I really I, do. Yeah, I didn't catch that beforehand. I kept on thinking that the way that Peter Boyle was talking about his uh, his sister's uh, sister's kid or his wife's nephew, that's what it was. His wife's nephew was going to show up and they were going to meet up with him and everything. He, he kept on talking about it way too much. And I think that that was starting to tip off uh, uh, Eddie Coyle. Yeah. And, you know, it ends with, it ends in the old Boston Garden. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I'm always amazed how they shot this sort of stuff because it looks like it's, you know, a fairly full, uh, you know, they they cut in some B-roll of a Bruins game. Right. And it's it's Robert Mitchum watching number four, Bobby Orr. Yeah. Skate around. About him. Yeah. yeah. Skate yeah. around the old Boston Garden. And it's just you're building. The movie is building towards this ultimate conclusion that you know you can't get away from. Like he's not he's not going to survive. Yeah. And the and, and the way it's the the way they finally do kill him. It's again the it's not the glorification of violence. It's the opposite of that. You don't even really see it on screen. The the, the shot happens and and Eddie's dead and he's just they leave his body in a car in a in a shitty strip mall parking yeah. lot like a nobody. And, like a nobody, and that's like how this guy leaves life. Is he kind of went through life as uh, as a low level criminal, and and when he finally, f you know, had to had to break his own moral code to give up his friends, even that doesn't get him out. In fact, it does the opposite; it gets him killed. Yeah, and yeah, yeah man, I just, I, you know, it, the, 
this is why this movie speaks to me so much, especially yeah. as I get oh, older. Yeah. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I really did. I don't care how slow it was. I didn't care about the music in it. I was entrenched in the feelings that these guys were putting out there. Um, you know, I'm as straight arrow as you're going to get. I really am. I don't know the life that you've that you've led, Jason, or the things that you've seen would terrify me. But to see these guys doing this stuff on on the screen, as low level as it might be, it's so beyond me. But it's it's fascinating. That's why a movie like Heat, although not my favorite like yours, is fascinating to me. Uh, um, the, the Departed, fascinating. Pretty much all kinds of mob movies. Were, were, it, it's great, but this one felt even stronger because it's just there was desperation from the get-go to the end yeah and like you said this is up there in, in one of the top three uh boston crime movies i think uh i i also actually eh, i don't know i think this is probably better for me than the departed i like the okay. town gone okay. baby gone and uh i didn't see gone baby gone um i know i know what it's about uh the town was great it was brutal jeremy renner was fantastic as a as a psycho in that one yeah. um he really played a great film a great great part in that film um but it's just amazing to me that boston is such a crime-ridden town in these films and apparently it's, it's really not that far from it apparently yeah <laughs> the, i mean the I guess, world yeah I, you know there are certain cities that just sort of have a uh, cinematic flair and boston's one of those cities new york obviously la for michael mann so often yeah but yeah. there there are just certain towns that that you know vegas to an extent too yeah. that are just cinematic and, and these stories end up looking so authentic when you put them up on the screen yeah. and um i think when you talk about authenticity mm-hmm. you're instantly drawn to the work of director michael bay yes yes <laughs> <laughs> so, which, which brings us to your challenge for the week, The Rock, 1996 classic summer film, The Rock. Go ahead. So you asked me if I'd ever seen it, and I did. I saw it when it came out. In, right. Uh, yeah, when it when it came out. Yeah, but you told me, but you told me that you didn't really remember a lot of it, and uh, that would be uh, a good challenge for you because now you'd see it with uh, different eyes. So I I decided to include that as your challenge. Yeah, because we have to think long term here on the Movie yeah, Challenge Accepted exactly. podcast. You and I have seen a lot of movies. We have that we both that we both seen exactly whether we like them or not exactly. So we'll we'll have to amend every once in a while. Right, because what I think we're going to do is we're going to have to revisit movies that we might have seen 20, 30 years ago that we loved or hated and try to see them now and and see how they've aged. But um, I was almost afraid to go back and, and watch this because you made me see the Transformers. <laughs> yes, yes. And, but, but I did this on purpose, okay? I did this because I knew, I knew what your reaction to the Transformers was going to be. And, and, and while you are not a Michael Bay fan, he has had some quote-unquote critically acclaimed films. Uh, I, I know we spoke about Pain and Gain. I know Bad Boys was uh, big for him, uh, not only money-wise, but, you know, they were very well received. And in the ranks of Michael Bay film, The Rock is pretty much number one. So how do you feel about it? Do you know that in my research for for this podcast, Mm -hmm. I learned that The Rock is included in the Criterion Collection? Oh, I did not know that. Look I did that. not know that either. And how do you, how do you I, feel about that? Because you love the Criterion Collection. Yeah, I feel like those are intelligent cinephiles mm-hmm. that are able to curate a remarkably high-level uh-huh. slew of films, yeah. and they're constantly rotating in so, and out. So what do you and, think now? <laughs> what do you think well, now? <laughs> so my takeaway, thankfully, is um, 
I liked it, you know, 30 years ago. Okay. And I still liked it. I had okay. a really good time. Good, I, good. I, I, I think, and I've noticed what I do is because I take notes, and I think you take notes too as we're going right, through this. Right, right. And what I've noticed is if I'm having a good time, my notes start to become fewer and fewer as okay. the movie goes on. Because you're not nitpicking. You're not nitpicking. Exactly. Gotcha. Once, once you accept uh, the world that you're in, and right. it's different for you because you have to accept sort of the obtuse, uh, silent, um, real difficult to inaccessible uh, sort of movies that I give you. Yes. But once I accept sort of the over-the-top ridiculousness that comes with a Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer production, <laughs> which when that, when I remember as a kid, whenever that showed up in the credits, a uh, Simpson you, Bruckheimer production. You knew you were going to have a good time. <laughs> you knew this was the product of two guys doing kilos of cocaine <laughs> and just throwing tons of money at the screen. And you you were, as a kid, you're like, yeah, this is what I need. This is what just I need Just inject this yeah. into my veins. These guys get me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because two, two Hollywood producers coked out of their minds get me. They understand me. But one, yeah, once, once I get past like the initial sort of um, the typical Michael Bay sort of action histrionics where, right. you know, guys get punched or they trip on something and they do a full somersault and they land on their back like when they're doing the initial uh, break into the chemical weapons facility right um once you get past that mm -hmm. and you're like okay this is the world i'm in and for me once you accept nicholas cage for for better or worse much like a marriage okay. in good times and bad right <laughs> um i think cage is phenomenal in this. Oh, he's great. Stanley Goodspeed at his best. A horrible uh, character name. It, yeah, one of the definitely. worst character names I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it, 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 did, it did make you chuckle. But all of the things that make Nicolas Cage an odd, sometimes distracting actor, um, in this movie, it all just kind of works. And, you know, the, the whole movie works because there's a chemistry between him and Connery. Yes, Absolutely. That you just can't fake. And I, I think everything that turns me off to Cage in some of his wilder roles, like in, in the Wicker Man remake and yeah, Ghost yeah. Rider and some right. of his crazier over-the-top work, in this, he's just weird enough to be compelling. And I think that goes to his character as a, um expert, a doctor of chemical well, what is he a chemical expert of something the chemical like weapon a, expert i think for the like FBI? a chemical weapons expert yeah okay, so that's what he is so you know he has very little field work he barely knows how to use a gun you know he said that so he's not the kind of guy that normally gets at the front action but they need him in this particular instance because you know like other michael bay films you you're gonna you're gonna send uh, miners up onto the uh, asteroid. You're gonna definitely send a <laughs> chemical expert onto uh, into Alcatraz, leading a, a, a SEAL Team Six. You know, so it, it makes sense, of course. I did not have a problem with that in this movie. It's a little more believable. Okay. Um, okay. Because you're not putting you're not putting Cage's uh, FBI agent in charge of everyone. He's just kind of like, and, and he's reluctant. And that's the other thing that sort of works. Yeah, he's he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go because he, he knows he's overmatched. And, you know, when you, when you pair, like, God damn, I hate admitting this, man. I love this Cage performance. And I don't know <laughs> what that says about me because I, I, I don't care for a lot of Nick, Nick Cage work. Um, you know, leaving Las Vegas and, and Moonstruck and, and I'm sure, God, the guy's got an IMDb longer than my arm. But like, there's not a lot of his stuff I really am crazy nah, about. No, I'd say it's probably a handful of things that I could probably rewatch. And but this being the top.
Yeah, and it, it just it, it just never he never goes wrong. Every little uh, raised eyebrow, every little odd affect, a twitch or a nudge, or like he he jerks his head a certain way. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. all it all works, and I think it works far better when you get him and Connery in the same room. Right. So so the film is about is about um, Ed Harris's character, uh, Brigadier General uh, I'm Hummel. Sorry, Hummel, there you go, um, breaking into a weapons facility and stealing some uh, VX missiles that apparently have a uh, terrible, terrible chemical within them that can a teaspoonful can kill thousands of people. So he's, uh, he's put them on the rock, also known as Alcatraz Island, and taken a bunch of hostages with them and is demanding that the U.S. U.S. government pay um, millions of dollars to lost soldiers during uh, black operation missions, which they had to deny ever existed because they're black op- they're black ops. So he right. feels that there's something wrong with that, and this is his reaction to that. So, what do you think about the premise of the of the movie up until that point? I thought the premise was great. I mean, it, it doesn't fall into it's 30 years ago, and and obviously now, like sort of the common. Uh, trope is to make the like a rogue military unit or right. uh, uh, sort of the enemy like they, they're misguided and well not, yeah i mean like the the viewer is supposed to view them as misguided mm-hmm. and that's not really necessarily the case with hummel right. and in doing research here you, you i learned that that harris needed hummel to be a, a sympathetic character for the for the audience like he is not he so you learn that he never has any intention of actually launching these missiles. right exactly it was it was always going to be a bluff it was always a bluff to try to draw attention to the families of these soldiers that have fallen in these these foreign wars that are not spoken of because mm-hmm. they are undeclared right. and these families don't get anything when their their loved ones die overseas and no benefits no benefits. And the whole idea is that he's doing this to draw attention to his cause. And then when the government calls his bluff, he essentially gives up. Right. Yeah. Or he wants to. But obviously there are other other lesser characters in right. his uh, in his squad that he's recruited that, that are like, fuck it, we're launching these missiles. Yeah. We, we, we want the money that you promised us. And boy, a million dollars is a lot of money back in 1996 for these guys, huh? <laughs> million dollars and he tells everyone then you will go live in a country without extradition for the rest of your lives yeah uh, what with a million dollars a million dollars it take that much to get the, a fake passport back then <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't know if that i don't know if that's enough to go live in i don't well, even know who right, doesn't right, have an extradition yeah, yeah. well but, if you remember from from the fast and the furious movies portugal doesn't have an extradition you know what? This is why you need to watch the Fast and Furious movies. It all, because it all you, comes back to Vin Diesel. If you ever commit a major crime and you have to get out of the country, you can watch the those movies and know where to live. And you can go right down to the favelas and you'll yeah, be fine in Brazil. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, but yeah, yeah, like it was important for Harris to not play a caricature or like this cartoon villain that that would be just a terrible experience. No, and, uh, he, and, he, and he played him in such a human way that you really do, you did feel for him. And you, you felt for his cause and um, were not against what he was doing because he didn't go out of his well to hurt anybody, kill anybody. He lost one of his own team members uh, bringing in in the beginning of the film to steal these missiles and you could tell he was heartbroken over it. Um, so he played it a very humane character in this film. 
Yeah, and you know he shows it throughout. Where uh, in the the shootout between the seals and his um, army, uh, uh, he didn't, yeah, he 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 did not want that to happen. No, he never wanted any of this to happen. But again, that's that's what makes him a, that's what makes him a better villain than like Doctor No or um, Martin Drax from Moonraker, who's this crazy mustache twirling embodiment of ridiculous right. evil. Right. Where Harris is a conflicted guy that is trying to do a thing that obviously is is kind of shitty because when you could kill everyone in San Francisco with a terrible nerve gas, you're probably yeah. not a great guy. Right. Right. But. You know, he has, again, every every villain in their story, in their mind, they are the hero of their own story. So it's, it's very interesting to me also, Jason, that you brought up Dr. No and Moonraker. And as you know, I've said that this is James Bond's, uh, uh, Sean Connery's James Bond final film. And, you, you know, you just can't refute it. Uh, you could tell the man lived. Uh, uh, the man was uh, His Majesty's Secret Service. He said he was. So there's a, a blog. There's a website called nofilmschool.com. Mm -hmm. And back in June of 2021, they posted, Alyssa Miller posted an article that says, uh, is entitled, Michael Bay's The Rock Might Actually Be the Last of Sean Connery's Bond Films. I read it. I read it. You have said this for a while. So yeah. this, this theory has been bubbling around the internet mm -hmm. probably since, I don't know, Reddit or... Uh, or, or... Yeah, since it first came out. But, you know, they, they could speak about it on Reddit and stuff like that. And it, it essentially sets the groundwork that James Mason, the Connery character, right. is, in fact, James Bond. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And the, in, in the article, the timeline, uh, it, it says it... Uh, the author uh, writes that Mason was incarcerated on, uh, on Alcatraz in 1962 and escaped in 63. Mm -hmm. um, now, from that timeline, it, this would place it right around Dr. No. Right. Because Dr. No, the, uh, the flag flying over the Jamaican embassy is the British flag. And Jamaica did not become independent until August of 1962. So that means that if you're using this theory that the character of James Bond Wait a minute now. We have to clarify something. Do you believe that James Bond is a person or a title? Oh, well, we know that double O is a title. Right. The double so, O. Do, I, yeah. yeah, it's a designation for those who are, you know, can, you know, can kill. Authorized to kill. You know, authorized to kill. Um no, but, no, no. I mean, okay, but I'm I'm just using Daniel Craig's most recent work to work with, and I'm not a huge James Bond fan prior to that. So I'm going to say that it's a person. I've always thought that it's a person, and he yeah. kind of, the, the James Bond exists in this um, sort of Simpsons-like world where he never gets old, and, right, right. You, you know, he just, he, he never ages. I've always kind of thought that, but I am intrigued by the possibility that James Bond would be an identity bestowed right. on whoever occupies that 007 sort of role. I think it, I think it provides a lot more avenues from a storytelling point of view. Um, I think I think it definitely opens up a lot of avenues. I mean, you could say James Bond. Well, I mean, imagine a bunch of bad guys saying, "But but we killed him," <laughs> right? Or, or or we know he's eighty years old. What are you talking about? <laughs> and, and we know that the the franchise from like, and this is where like the the industry kind of works its way into the storytelling. Is we know that the franchise of James Bond is is so valuable that right. even though 
um, Daniel Craig's Bond died at the end of No Time to Die. Spoiler alert. <laughs> you know, you know what? We're, we're Listen, here's here's the general rule. Okay, if you are listening, well, I guess it's I I guess it's unfair for me to spoil No Time to Die on a podcast oh, about boy, the Rock oh and the friends of Eddie Coyle. I but, mean, I didn't see that one, but okay, but I knew it happened, oh, so don't worry about oh, it. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Come on, you wiki everything. You I I did stop. wiki that. I did wiki that, so I knew that he was dying in that film. Yes. But, yes, uh, but. So uh, you know that the character is going to come back, and obviously the, the question is how are they going to reintroduce the character? And obviously exactly. it's going to be a different person bearing the name James Bond, or it might be a woman. We don't know what direction they're going to go in. Right. But, man, we got a little bit off the, off the rails here. We, we were talking essentially that this is, James, this is Connery's last James Bond movie. Right. I, I mean, listen, listen, as silly as it might seem, it is fun to think that because he played it as... As far as I'm concerned, you look back on his performance was as James Bond, but, you know, tired and I don't want to deal with this shit. He definitely had the lethal weapon. I'm too old for this shit kind of uh, thing going there. And he didn't want to deal with good speed. He didn't want to deal with the seals. He didn't want to have to go back to freaking to, to Alcatraz. He just wanted to live his own life and not have to deal with being in jail any longer. So he just went along with it. Yeah, it's a James Bond who's kind of been beaten down yeah, by life. And he's I, much more exactly. angry. Yes. He's not suave. He's not the the Bond of, of Thunderball and Dr. No. Yeah, um, yeah he, he's much more uh, brutalized yeah. by just, what the just American government smart, does to him yeah. for 30 years. Exactly. As smart as he was, but physically not as adept maybe although you know he, that uh, that timing sequence with the fire to get into into the uh into the rock originally because most boiler rooms have fire hanging just spitting <laughs> spitting out like that in a in like a pit in a pendulum style yeah, sequence, it was so. it, it it was odd that there was a, a flaming death trap in the basement of of Alcatraz and also <laughs> Part of the basement of Alcatraz is also the Temple of Doom from the Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> it was it was great it, it because was, it, there was nothing about this film that I do not like. I tell you, yeah, and you know, and, and again, it's one of those things where it's ridiculous. And clearly, Connery, geez, how old was he when he did this? Nineteen ninety six. So he had to be in his sixties. So he's in his sixties when he does this, and he's clearly not the most nimble. Uh, he, he's not Tom Cruise no, doing no. his own stunts in the Mission Impossible series, yeah, no. but but the action scenes in this are done in such a way where they're all as over the top as they are. They are all a little believable until right. you get to uh, the Rocket Man, which I'd forgotten, <laughs> which is just a terrible line. Um, and also, mm-hmm. speaking of terrible lines, right, not, right. a bit of a segue. Go ahead. According to. Uh, according to the DVD commentary track, the okay. um, the script was not finished when uh, when Cage committed to the movie, and also the script was touched by like a dozen writers, including mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin, wow. Quentin Tarantino, and Robert Town. And if you don't know, do you know who Robert Town is? Uh, remind me, please. Uh, Chinatown. Um, oh, okay, okay, yeah, he, yeah. Jake? Robert, did, did he do two Jakes also? I think he did, um, and he's also famous as one of those guys back when screenwriters were, were gods in Hollywood. Yes. He was one of those guys that w- would get sent a script by a studio and get paid like $100,000 just to, look at to do right. a week-long punch-up on right. a script. So he's right. one of those guys that has touched God knows how many scripts, 
to just make them better. And and he's uncredited in a lot of his work. So so the script so the script was at the very least looked at by like you said, a, a half a dozen really well known writers. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's one of those it it's also one of those where like I'm I'm a big fan of the the auteur style of of filmmaking, which is you give a director like a uh, a Chloe a Chloe Zhao or in True Detective a Nick Pizzolatto, um, not that he's a director, but he's a producer. But you give a filmmaker sort of carte blanche to do whatever they want to get their image onto the screen. And right. auteurism was a big part of like the American cinema wave of the 70s with you know Peter Yates, and we were talking Eddie Coyle, but Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola. It's sort of the director as God on right. a movie. Okay. And if there was ever a director who thinks he's God, that would it be. might be Michael Bay. That would be. Um, <laughs> let's, let's go to the cast here for a second. I remember you texted me when you, got, when you started watching this film uh, a week or so ago, the cast of this film. And besides Connery and Cage, Ed Harris, in only the second film that I had seen him in, uh, I'd forgotten that he was in The Firm. That was the first film I ever saw Ed Harris in. And I, you know. He was, he, I love the book, The Firm. The, book, the movie wasn't that fantastic, so Ed Harris kind of got lost on me. But he was great in this. John Spencer, David Morris, William Forsyth, Michael Bean from The Terminator. Who was scared of leading actual Navy SEALs in his scenes. Yeah. A, yes. guy, a guy who essentially made his career playing you know, special ops commandos. Yeah, the was, Navy SEAL. The Navy was, SEAL. <laughs> yes. Was yeah. terrified. Oh, that's yeah. right. I forgot. Yeah, was, was terrified in- of, uh, of of acting alongside actual Navy SEALs. Yeah. And he was nervous the whole time. Yeah. Uh, John C. McGinley, Tony Todd from um, from Candyman, uh, Bokeem Woodbine. Bokeem I mean, Woodbine, yeah. who a young... Uh, I, I remember him. Uh, I just rewatched or watched for the first time the second season of Fargo, which... Right, right. Is probably a perfect season of television. I remember you told me that, yes. And I think he got the Emmy for best supporting and in, in that. And and I was like, oh my god, look at him thirty years yeah, ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Danny Nucci. Uh, I, this was. I mean, you can go on and on. This was a, a nineteen ninety six for. Uh, this was a perfect film for all of these, for to have everybody in. I was. It was a perfect summer film for me. This is, and if I had to pick the better of the two, although. Independence Day is known better. This is a better film. I uh, yeah, I would agree. I I haven't seen Independence Day is another one of those movies I haven't seen since it came out. Yeah, but um, I would argue that like seeing this in 1993 and seeing this two weeks okay. ago, 96, 96, 96. I'm sorry, and so 25 years ago, and then seeing this, uh, you know, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. I enjoy the hell out of myself. And like yeah. you said, this cast, if you were, if you, I'm 45, you are 47, uh, 48. And if you grew up around the time that we grew up and you watched these movies as a 15, 16, 17-year-old, yeah. all of these faces were in everything that oh, you yeah. saw back then. Oh, absolutely. How? William Forsyth himself. I, I saw William Forsyth the first time I saw him was in, um, uh, oh, my God, Out for Justice with uh, yeah, with Steven, uh, Steven Seagal. Seagal. Yeah, Steven Seagal. Oh, it's a great film. Love that film. But he... Next year, he played a Mexican Chicano from L.A. in American Me with James, yeah. uh, Edward James Olmos. So, I mean, that Very guy, good movie. That guy, great movie. I thought it was a great movie. He um, he was like one of the faces of the early 90s for me. 
Yeah, John yeah. John C. McGinley was in Platoon, oh, and he's, he was God. in Scrubs, and he's been in a ton of stuff. He's, and He was in uh, Point Break? <laughs> yes, 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 you're right. And absolutely. also, uh, with a couple of brief lines, um, Vossler from Crimson Tide is in this movie. He's one of the Marines that gets killed. I think he's the Marine that gets shot through the head um, in when in the uh, in the shower sh- shootout when he's the guy that comes back down. That was the, Danny. That was Danny Nucci. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. That yes. was Danny Nucci. Yes, I'm sorry. That, that was Danny Nucci. Yes, uh, Lieutenant Shepard, and he was also in. Uh, he was also in Eraser with um, uh, James Caan Schwar- and, and Schwarzenegger, where he dies yeah. on the plane. Uh, he gives you know, yeah, Monroe. He gives him his uh, review and he shoots him in the chest. You know what threw me off is Danny Nucci's IMDb photo is up to date, and so it's him now, and he's got salt and pepper hair. Yes, and that's yes. why I, I could not realize that that was that was Vossler from Crimson yeah. Tide. But yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's it's one of those movies, and especially, and this is especially because it's one of those things that I harp on you on about mm-hmm. buying into the nostalgia factor, right. and how I think that is ultimately a negative in terms of experiencing. Uh, in sort of enjoying a movie or or getting some sort of value from the movie. I don't like movies that rely exclusively on nostalgia. So I don't know how much of rewatching this and my enjoyment of it comes from the fact that I'm looking at a bunch of guys that I grew up watching their faces on movie screens. But I think it's, I I don't, I think I'm a harsh enough critic where Mm -hmm. if it didn't, if the characters didn't work, and even though it's over the top, and even though, even though Sean Connery flips uh, FBI Director Womack <laughs> off the roof <laughs> of a great. San Francisco hotel, great. with string, using, with, with basically with just string, string. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, twine basically, <laughs> um, and then just ties the twine to or the, ties the string to a lawn chair that is out there, <laughs> and walks away. Like once you get over that, and you're like, all right, this is the world we're living in. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous and it's fun and. Uh, and I think it, it, it held up I think it held up really well. And I think actually the the ending, excluding the Rocket Man quip, because I think that's I don't know who wrote that, but yeah. and, you wanna wanna know, know who killed JFK? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so that ending, so you know, there's there's all these little observations on the um on the DVD commentary, and I did not listen to the DVD commentary, but I found a few resources online that have it. Right. But where, where does the where the bulldog come from? Did uh, did Michael Bay just because there's a bulldog in that final scene when they get the the microfilm out of okay. the church? Right, wasn't it and, his? Wasn't it his pet? That, don't you see him at one point in the apartment that uh, 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 Nicholas Cage's character, Goodspeed? You mean is, is doesn't he have that dog? I okay, so it's possible that it, yeah. he shows up on the screen and I missed it and if that's the case that's hard on that's that's bad on me I was more confused by the like is is he naked playing the guitar so he almost dies in the opening in yeah. his opening scene they almost get killed by a package that gets sent in and he diffuses it right. and then he goes home to play the guitar naked and listen to the Beatles album which came to him that day as a matter of fact and I feel like maybe in a very Maca- Matthew McConaughey kind of way, <laughs> that might just be what Nicolas Cage does. Uh, it's possible. It's possible. I mean, uh, I, I, I don't think. I think he had his shirt off. It's possible. Now that I'm reminiscing and looking at so, that uh, in my mind, I, I, he didn't have pants on either. So it's possible that the guitar was covering everything. So there's a hilarious comment in here that there's a dispute over why that why the Nick Cage character was naked at that point in the movie, <laughs> and Nick Cage says it's because he. So Michael Bay says first 
that Nick wanted to be naked. Okay. And that was his motivation. It's just like, you know, I, I'm, I just want to be naked. And Nicolas Cage swears that it is because he wants to show the audience that his character is at home. Which then leads you to ask the question, does Nick Cage often walk around at home naked? And is that what he associates with the depiction of one who is in their own home? As a, uh, Knowing that Nick, Nicolas Cage has owned at one point or another at least one castle in his life, I could, I'm, I'm safe to assume that he probably feels like he could walk around naked anywhere. It's just <laughs> hilarious how sometimes people sort of unpack these things where yeah. it's like, all right, listen, we yeah. need to get this character to be, to be at home. What do we do? I'm He's shocked. buck naked, sir. I'm shocked that there's so much out there that you were able to find that people were talking about this movie. The you level know, that, that they got so deep into it. <laughs> That's the level to of me. scholarship that you can find on this movie on the internet is insane. There's I'm not even getting into um, on in Paste magazine, which I, I've not read elsewhere. A, guy, a writer by the name of Jacob Aller in June of, of this year. Right posted a very long think piece about the political and sociological implications of the rock and he leans in heavily into how the um the idea of the of the american male who is motivated to control his world by violence is an ultimate enemy and that's why oh, you know boy. the uh the yeah it's, it's a very listen we don't get too deep political on this yeah. podcast no, no, we like no, to keep boy, it light. Oh boy that is deep <laughs> but if you want if you want to get into it and it speaks to me i might not agree with everything that this particular writer his point of view but um it a lot of these points kind of hit home and um it, it, it actually he's able to connect it to something at the very end of the not the very end of the movie but when cage and connery are locked up in the cell block right cage is on the floor of his cell block talking about how there's a lot of uh there's a lot of male anger on mm-hmm. this island a yeah, lot a lot right. of a lot of boys a lot of sons with daddy issues yeah right right and i think for a movie that came out in 96 it's kind of ahead of its time in terms of how it's investigating the 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 aspect of a certain kind of american male mm-hmm. that you know that needs an m4 strapped across their chest in yeah, order to get anything done and it, it brings up the um uh the word testosterone that we hear a lot of and how you know there's a lot of uh of uh what, what, what's the uh what's what's the words that people use I, these, these days i don't toxic masculinity toxic excuse me toxic masculinity I, so thinking of that and you're bringing it up jason do you think this type of film 1996 could be made today the way it was with that type of um level of Toxic, toxic masculinity, quote unquote, out there for people to enjoy. You think that it would be received as well? I think it would be a different kind of movie. I think it would be a movie that would be much harsher. It would be much. It wouldn't be a light um, summer blockbuster movie. I think it would be a, a, a movie that is interrogating the. I don't think Ed Harris's character would be nearly as um, sympathetic. Right. I, I right. think I think you would have made the 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 military industrial complex would have been drawn and, and they would have been drawn to task much harsher right. and much more openly. But right. I do think in the movie, and I think this is what works about it, is mm. again much like in Friends of Eddie Coyle, no one is playing like an over the top sort of just evil person. There is a lot of 
there's a lot of there's a lot of government characters who you see they're like oh fuck we've been doing this thing we shouldn't have been doing and now mm-hmm. we got caught and like right. oh Phil, philip philip baker hall right. the uh, the right. library cop from seinfeld bookman right. mm-hmm. he's in this briefly too another yeah, one of yeah. those uh yeah. from hard eight uh great character actor yeah um he shows up and he acknowledges like yeah we we've had we've had Mason in jail for 30 yeah. years and he's like no we haven't we're not supposed yeah. to admit that and he's yeah. like yeah but we have what are we yeah. going to do yeah. and 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 he goes he goes he goes he, he's 60 years old he, he's the same age as me and i got to get up three times in the, in the middle of the night to take a piss you know so yeah. it basically is saying we can let him out he's not going anywhere not knowing that you know this is James Bond so he can get out of anything of course, and again, no one knew that at the time, but you and and, and a few other thousand redditors out there, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and also possibly Connery. The, you know, another another one of those little little tidbits in terms of what a badass Connery was is he did not want to take the boat to and from the island every day. So apparently, he had production build a bungalow yes. on the island for him to live on during shooting. Listen, Sean Connery, towards the end of his uh, working career as an actor, did gave zero fucks. And God bless he, him. He, God bless him. He he basically knew that he'd done more than enough, and a lot of these were, you know, they they, they were paychecks for him. So he was going to get um, the most out of him that he possibly can without really interrupting his own life too much. So I have no problem with that. I have no problem. The guy yeah, earned yeah, it. Yeah. Incredible career. One of my favorite actors. Yeah, really fast though. Going back to uh, Eddie Coyle, I, I wanted to bring up the uh, point about the director of that film, which was... um, Peter Yates. Peter Yates, yeah. Okay, so looking at his directing credits, he did... He went from some sort of action, noir film, a a crime film, to Krull in 1983. Now, our friend Colin agrees with me that Krull was a good movie. It was trying to be too much of... Swords and Sandals slash Star Wars, but I can't believe he did this film. I can't believe that he actually did Breaking Away, which is one of my all-time favorite films, though I haven't seen it in a long time. Have you ever seen Breaking Away? I have not seen Breaking Away. Well, if you don't know, it's a coming-of-age movie with Dennis Quaid with... um, uh, Oh, the cycling movie. Yes, yes. Uh, Daniel Stern, Jackie Earl Haley coming off of a great performance in the Bad News Bears, you know? So, I mean, uh, you know, that's a guy who never grew up. I mean, he's always been, yeah. like, two feet two. So, uh, but, yeah, that was a great film. I mean, he's had a kind of eclectic uh, run as a director that I'm very surprised of. So, that's uh, good on him. Yeah, I mean, and again, one of my favorite cop movies of all time, 1968, he directed uh, Steve McQueen and Bullet. Bullet, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, also, so. that's another movie with a totally incomprehensible plot. Uh, <laughs> talk about like Eddie Coyle. Yeah, that was a movie it, where saw I saw it um, before, right before the pandemic. They had an anniversary showing, um, and I saw it up here in a the theater. And I swear to God, I other than the car chase through the streets of San Francisco, I had no clue what was going on in that movie. And I love that movie. And no matter how many times I've seen it, I still cannot unpack that plot. But, That's funny. Yeah, no, I've never yeah, seen it, 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 but I know I know of it. Yeah, it is funny how, how directors, kind of how their careers uh, come and go. Because obviously Michael Bay in mm-hmm. The Rock, you know, he yeah. he's not full-on over-the-top in love with all the soldiers and the military sort of personnel that I think he exhibits later in his career. Right. Um, but th- so so when he's sort of 
being held back in some way, either by the screen, the, sc- uh, the screenplay, or how the characters are playing the roles. Like because it's not a full-on pornographic military-industrial <laughs> love fest. I love that. I you think keep it's on a, saying that. <laughs> I think it's a more interesting movie. Right. And and again, it's not. You know, Michael Bay is not debating the nature of violence in man. We're not getting that deep into it, but he right. is, you know, the movie's got some things to say and, and, and it's a little more nuanced than you would think. Right. And, and more importantly, it's a good time. You know, the other thing is I, 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 I commented to you, I think in Transformers, there was a scene when Shia LaBeouf does the whole flare, uh, the smoke. Uh, oh yeah. 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 And that's where and they I get said, it from. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sitting here and I watch when I watch this, I'm like, God damn, that ending is still effective. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he should have been incinerated, <laughs> not blown into the water, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you know that that last second with the jets uh, flying down. By the way, one of those uh one of those fighter pilots, is Jim Caviezel. Jim Caviezel. Yes, I meant to tell you that. Well, God, yeah. What about that for a little tidbit? The man who played the the, the most whipped Christ of all time. <laughs> yeah, the the ultimate beating that he took in that movie. Oh, but yeah, God. when when Cage when Cage gets out on, on onto the open air and he pops the was it the green smoke? Green uh, smoke. Yep. green smoke green smoke and everyone's like green smoke green yeah, smoke and yeah. i'm like god it's it just works it was yeah. effective and i was on board and long live michael bay <laughs> oh boy only two weeks and boy we we've, we've gone well listen in the end this was his best film and it was only his second film so you know whether he went too big after this, to make it really worthwhile to go see you know, the Armageddon and uh, Pearl Harbor and then all the Transformer stuff. This one shows you that as a director of these types of films, he can be very effective. I guess he just needs to be reined in. And this, yeah. this was the movie to do that. Yeah, there's something to be said for notes from the studio. That is I, that is the takeaway of today's yeah, of today's I'm, podcast. I'm so happy that you enjoyed this film. I really am. Uh, it, it, it gives me a warm glow. <laughs> I I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I would have enjoyed it more had I not gotten debilitatingly ill between yeah. watching glad, it and coming. I'm glad up, you're but, you okay. Know, I'm glad you're okay. I'm, I'm glad I'm okay as well. I'm also glad but, you're um, 800 miles away from me, so I don't have to get it from you. <laughs> I totally understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all yeah. right. So next week we're going to get back onto a regular schedule, guys. Again, yes. we had every intention of putting something out before Christmas. Blame me that's that's my fault i blame so you. <laughs> in light of that um i will let you challenge me with the next movie uh first okay so we are going back to the mcu and we're going now back into the avengers the second film uh avengers 2 basically age of ultron i'm going to tell you now that you are going to have questions and we'll leave it we'll, we'll leave it at that we'll leave it at that Going to have questions. Okay. Uh, I I had another... Oh, I'm sorry. Challenge accepted. We have to say that legally. It's in our contract. It's in our contract, yes. It's in our contract. Um, I was going to go in a different direction, but something you said today uh, made me stick to kind of the world you were in. We're going to go from from Boston, which is where we left Eddie Coyle, to the subways of New York City with uh, 1974's original... Oh, taking okay. of Pelham one two three. Very good. Okay, I figured that you were gonna you you caught up on that. Very good. And uh, so, uh, uh, can you just give me a quick uh, rundown on that film? Who's in that film? 
Oh man, who isn't in this uh, film? Okay, well then forget it. Then don't tell me the end. Challenge, no, no, I'll give you, challenge I'll accepted. Just, <laughs> challenge accepted. I'll yeah, just leave you with this. Okay, okay. Yeah. Walter Matthau, oh. Robert Shaw, Martin Balsam, Hector Elizondo. Wow. Lee Wallace. It is Jerry Stiller, Ben Stiller's father, wow. and of course uh, wow. Costanza's father. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, I just and wonder, does Hector Elizondo have hair in this film? I believe he has a hat for most of it. And I don't I also think that Hector Elizondo has never had hair. I, I was guy the guy was born spear bald. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. But it's worked for him. The guy's had a hell of a career. So uh, next week. Yeah, absolutely. I will watch Avengers Age of Ultron. And I will be taking Pelham one, two, three. And uh, we'll be back. We'll be on a regular schedule unless I uh, get a leg amputated or develop uh, dysentery. Uh, we, let's hope not, but we will figure it out even if you do. So, again, <laughs> thank you, everyone. Thank you, Arco, for being back. And uh, we will see you next week on Movie Challenge Accepted. Take care, everybody.